Well, this morning I want to try to share with you something. I, I, I'd struggled whether or not to share this because it's quite easy to come in front of a, a new crowd and to teach your best sermon. Uh, of course, I have at least one of those, I think. <clears throat> but you tend to want to impress the people, and I think I'm done with that in my life. And ultimately, you try to understand, Lord, what is it that you want to speak to us here today? And that's what I'm asking, and that's what I'm hopefully you're asking. You're looking to be spoken to and to be delivered a word from our Lord. If you have your Bibles, one of the things I would recommend, if you, don't have your, if you do have your Bible and you don't know the Bible well, I would recommend going to the very beginning of the Bible. This is a table of contents, and I'm going to be switching back and forth. It's called, You Have to Humble Yourself in Front of Others, other than you just flipping the pages as we go along. But Micah chapter 4 is where we want to look. And if you go to the book of Matthew and take a left-hand turn about an eighth of an inch or so, it's in the Minor Prophets, the book of Micah in chapter 4. I want to read to you the first few verses of the chapter, and I'll be jumping back and forth into various passage, passages as we go. Micah chapter 4. I'm glad to hear the familiar rustle of Bible pages. That's good. Some of you are still confused. Micah, I've never read that. Micah chapter 4. Micah records for us, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's begin in prayer. Lord, as I come here standing before these people, I come not in strength, but in weakness. And I recognize the complexity of dynamics going on in each person's lives are so far beyond our capacities that if we have wisdom in the least, we recognize that, Lord, unless you move, we're done. I do that this morning for my preaching. They're perhaps saying that for their life. And God, unless you move, we're done. But let us not fall into the foolishness of turning to our own resources and thus becoming idolaters. I pray, God, that we would lift our eyes up to you whose throne is in the heavens and that we would honor you and give you the just respect that is due unto your holy name. Let us not be afraid of the fact that you're a holy God. I pray, God, that we could please you, to honor you. I pray that you'd give words to this mere man. That's all I am. And they're just mere people. Open their ears. And God, quicken our hearts. Forgive us of our sins. And I pray, God, that you would put the blood of Christ upon this place here this morning. And I plead your blood upon this building and upon these people. And I ask, God, that you would bind the works of the wicked one. You would press him out and let these hear your name. We pray for this grace. You would take your glory in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, certainly when you read a passage like this, the first uh, antenna that goes up in your spiritual mind, I think, is eschatology, that there's some type of a flow or a pattern to the end-time events, and somehow that's merely what God is interested in. And certainly when we look at the end-time events, they're going to happen. They're not going to happen because we study them. They're not going to happen because we want them to happen. They're going to happen. But in this event, what I see is not just the historical outplanes of certain events that are going to happen in the future, but what I see is actually the character and the nature of God displayed upon the earth in his kingdom. It's the millennial kingdom. It's the time where the scripture says that he's going to rule upon the earth for a thousand years. But in that, that eschatological future 
event that's going to take place, I see, as I said, the character and the nature of God in terms of his desire for the movement of the people towards his name. He said, in this day, the final day, but I would suggest to you any day where God truly is, in this day, the people would flow into the house of the Lord. There would be a movement, a mass congregate of the people, and as a consequence of them coming into the house of the Lord, they're interested not in learning about their best life now. They're interested not learning how they can become greater and greater upon the earth. Those are fringe benefits at best, but put as the first goal, it becomes idolatry. Their interest is not any of these things, but what it says here is that, Lord, you would teach us your ways, and number two, that we may walk within your ways. So that the response of the people of God in the final day, and what I would suggest should be the response of any true movement of God today, is that we have the heart cry from within saying, God, the reason I'm here, the reason I'm in a place is not to be entertained because certainly I can find better entertainment within the world. But the reason that I'm doing this is because I want you, Lord, to teach me your ways. And how many of us understand that if we learn Christianity, that gets boring pretty quick? We don't teach Christianity. I don't teach Christianity. I teach Christ. And there's a world of difference. And as I teach a person, he never gets boring because he is the living God. A dead God, a concept, a flannel graph Jesus that you put upon the board gets terribly boring with time. Once you learn all the shtick about him, once you learn all the code words, it gets terribly boring. But if you come to a point where you are learning of the living Christ, you're walking with him, it never gets dry. And so the cry of the hearts of the people was, number one, Lord, you would teach us your ways. And number one, number two, that we could be, to borrow the words of James, doers of your word, not hearers only, and thus deceiving our own selves. So the measure of deception for the Christian man or woman is based upon not them not hearing the truth, it's based upon them hearing the truth and not having any intention whatsoever to put it into practice. This is the house of the Lord. That will be noted for people flowing into it. Not the cultural rave of our day where we no longer teach the word of God, where we no longer disciple the people to walk in the ways of the Lord, but we reach out to the lowest common denominator in order to pack out a room to give some sense of legitimacy to us. We're not doing that. But as we stand upon the truth of the word of God, where we're saying, God, you are true, and all the world is going to change. As Paul tells us to Timothy, he says, in the last days, there's going to be great falling away from the faith, not going to church. And we are deceived if we begin to think because there's a mass congregate in any locality, then somehow that's evidence that God is working. That may bespeak to the idolatry that's within our own hearts. It may betray something that we only think that God is real when we begin to see it with our eyes. But faith is the substance of things to hope for, the evidence of things not seen. And we can begin to live upon a level that we're saying, here's faith, do I see it? So therefore, because I'm living on this level, attaching myself to the things of this earth and not living by faith in the things of God, I will find myself gravitating increasingly to localities where it appears that God is moving, but he's not moving, and we know he's not moving because they're not teaching his ways, and they're not discipling the people to walk in his paths. It's a religious shtick. It's a movement of man's energy and man's mind. It's the thing we used to say years ago here in the pulpit. I says, if you give out free beer, you can pack a place out. I mean, it's not hard. And then we think, wow, God's moving. Yes, he is. He left. <laughs> he's not there at all. And we say, man, he's moving here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The truck is out there and he's gone. But rather, we begin to say, God, are you in a place? And what I notice in the day that we're living in, people do not anymore respect men who know the word of God. They rather heap teachers to themselves, those of you that know the scriptures, that tell what their itching ears want to hear. And is there an honor and a respect to men that know the word of God and teach the word of God? And then we grow in that to, to push us beyond that to begin to disciple in the things of God. Or are we merely impressed with the outward demonstration? And so that if we know that the proof that God is truly moving among a people is that people are moving in mass to the house of the Lord, let us be careful because just because they're moving into mass to a house of a Lord that calls it the Lord, a house of the Lord, doesn't make it the house of the Lord. It's only the house of the Lord because they're teaching of Him, not weeks on end about how to experience your sexuality or something like this. They're teaching of Him, His nature, His person, God is glorified. Man is humbled. 
And you don't want to know the way to experience life and not just mere existence is to know him. And you know what it requires to know him? Let me put it another way. You know what it will cost you to follow him? Everything. Everything. But you know what you'll gain by following him? Everything of a different sort. And all of a sudden we recognize the whole movement of God and the purposes of God is so that men would ultimately flow in mass, but God will never compromise teaching of him and discipling in him in order to get the people to flow in mass. Now, as I was thinking about this and flipping through the scriptures themselves, and those of you that are quick with your Bibles can join me, the book of Job. In the book of Job, we find that God is dealing and is revealing to us a man that was a righteous man that appeared to have not God with him because everything was going against him in his life. The outward man, the sensual man would look at him and say, God's not with you. How do you know? Look at all the people that are betraying you. Look at all the people that are leaving you. Look at all the people that aren't there anymore. That's how we know that God's not with you. And yet Job is saying, I'm not doing anything wrong. And he never tried to defend himself. He keeps his mouth shut. Even his wife comes up to him and says, curse God and die. And the sensual men, the men that are living upon the basis of outward manifestations of proof that God is with a person, are the same type of people that will gravitate to contexts that only demonstrate outward manifestations. They'll criticize a man like Job and say, God's not with you. How do you know? Because you're going through it. You're going through difficulty And in the book of Job, when God finally answers these men that thought they had so much wisdom, and by the way, God will finally answer men who think they have so much wisdom. God will finally answer men who think that their wisdom is manifested in their ability to generate human energy and call it God. God will speak to men. There is a God. And when he finally speaks to man, He says, who is this darkness counsel with words without wisdom? Chapter 38, verse 1. Those words give me a chill up my spine. I like the way they feel when I say them because it reminds me that ultimately God is going to correct the wrong thinking of men who live according to sensual wisdom but not the wisdom that comes from God. Who is this that darkness counsel with words without wisdom? And then he asks him a series of questions. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Did you see when I put in Leviathan? Uh, Do you understand? And he's bringing these men to understand all the wisdom that you've had upon the earth. All your understanding is really nothing compared to me. Do you really understand anything? And then he asks them in verse chapter 39, in verse 13, he brings up the story of an ostrich. You think that God wouldn't speak about animals. At least that's what I would think. And then I realized that actually he put an ostrich on the earth to demonstrate a fool. I mean, think of this. This thing is a bird, but it can't fly. It lays its eggs out in the hot sand so anybody can crush them. It sticks its... Well, I don't know if it does stick its head in the sand or not, but, but nonetheless, it's a stupid bird. It's a strong bird. I remember being down in California and eating ostrich meat. I apologize to my vegetarian friends. <laughs> It was gross, if that'll help you at all. (laughs) But they have these massive legs. They have strong legs. And the ostrich, because of his strength, although he can't be heaven-bound, he's only earth-bound, because of his strength, he runs away from the judgment of God. Look what he says here in verse 13 of chapter 39. It says, The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and the plumage of love. That's a weird way to say that, but they're not quite sure what that verb means. And then it says in verse 14, For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom. And given her no share in understanding, when she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horses and the riders. What is this ostrich? It's the stupid bird. It says that God has removed wisdom from her. Why did God put an ostrich upon the, on the earth? To demonstrate where wisdom has been removed. She flaps her arms, but where is she? Flying? She's stuck to the earth still. 
She lays her eggs in the only place she can lay eggs, on the ground. She couldn't say our citizenship is in heaven. She couldn't say that we're bringing people into a spiritual life. All she can do is produce things upon the earth. And the things that are produced upon the earth can be crushed by men. If it's built on God, it can't be crushed. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and 17. The gates of hell cannot prevail against what God is doing. But here's this one that appears to be one who can fly. It appears that she can go above and to fly and soar beyond. What is that law by which she, a bird lives by? It's called the law of aerodynamics. The law of aerodynamics rules over the law of gravity. The law of gravity doesn't disappear because the bird flies. The bird has a greater strength than the law of gravity, and therefore it flies. And what the scriptures reveal to us in Isaiah 40, 31, is that you, the people that are truly the children of God, shall mount up like wings on eagles. In other words, there'll be a supernatural strength to live above the natural gravitational pull to the things of this earth. This becomes the demonstration of the child of God that he tells us in Luke chapter 21, when the things that are going to happen on the end times, the things that are going to happen are going to be so terrible, it says that the hearts of men will fail them for the things that are going to happen upon the earth. And the question is, why are the hearts of men going to fail them? Only for one reason, their hearts are in the things of the earth. And if my hearts are in the things of the earth, my whole religion is about the things of the earth, my focus is about things of the earth, the lust of this earth, that's all that it is. I'm like the ostrich that claims she can fly and flaps her arms to impress people but can't get off the ground. I'm like the ostrich that only produces things on the earth that will easily be crushed by men. But rather, the servant of God is one who can begin to fly and to go above the things of this earth. He's demonstrating, if you will, a supernatural strength, a power that is greater than the gravitational pull to the things of this earth. So that the Christian man is not necessarily one that has no desires for things of this earth. He's one where he recognizes there's an ability, a power, a source of God that raises him beyond the things of this earth. But be careful of the one who claims to elevate you, but in fact, it's bringing you to the things of this earth. Be careful of the church that demonstrates a mass congregate of people, but it's not teaching the ways of the Lord and the disciple of the Lord. Be careful of any system that gives the promise of making you great, because that might be closer to what the scripture says is the Antichrist who comes and says, you are God, I am God, it's all about us. And what was the lie breathed into man in Genesis 3? You are God. And all of us have believed that since that day. We've tried to live as though that were true. A girl looks at a man, she loves him because he thinks that she can be God. A man looks at a girl and he loves her because he thinks that through her he can be God. Not the creator of the heavens and the earth, but the center of all affections. The universe revolves around me. And this is what Jesus said, if you seek your life on that level, you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for my sake and the gospel's sake, you'll find it. And if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, I'll add those things to you. But if you put them first, it becomes idolatry. So be careful of a system that claims to, quote, elevate you up and to make you greater. But it's actually the thrust behind the message is not glory unto God alone. The thrust behind it is glory unto man because it comes in the appearance of truth. But in fact, it's a lie. And Satan does not come in black spandex with a pitchfork, a Van Dyke and a guttural sound. Satan actually comes beautiful, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, like an angel of light. Therefore, Paul says, his ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. In other words, the ministers of Satan aren't in the bars, they're in the, the church, and he says they teach people how they can be right with God. Scary. Am I the only one that's freaked out over that? <laughs> Freaks me out. And therefore, I have to cling to the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. He didn't preach truth. He is the truth. And so we say, are we an ostrich? Are we an eagle? In the book of Matthew, Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 5 the outline of what his kingdom is supposed to look like. It's the Magna Carta of his kingdom. It's the statement of what his constitutional law, we could say, of what his kingdom looks like. And he opens with the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are crushed in spirit. Blessed are the ones who are contrite and broken. Those are the ones whose 
inherit the kingdom of God. Nobody proud and pompous inherits the things of God. The man of God is the one who is broken and contrite, as Isaiah says in chapter 66, this is the man that I esteem. He was contrite and brokenhearted and trembles at my word. And this becomes the type of the men and women across earth that are clinging unto righteousness, clinging unto God. While they're looking at the world around them changing, they have an unchanging constant that is God himself. And the reason I'm saying this this morning, friends, is because you're going to look at things upon the earth. For years we've been saying, we're in the last days, we're in the last days, we're in the last days. Israel's in the land, and we get all excited. But if we're in the last days, the Bible also says there's going to be a great falling away, not from church attendance, from the faith. There's going to be a great falling away from the faith, as Jude said, which is once and for all delivered to the saints. And therefore, it takes men of stillied resolve to not quit, to not give up and say, I am going to fight through. Even though there's all this sensual wisdom going on all around me, God's doing this and God's doing that. No. The wisdom that comes from God is contrite, brokenhearted. It trembles at his word. It lives meekly before him. It's not soulish or of this earth and therefore easily manipulated by thoughts and suggestions placed within my mind, but it's stayed upon the constancy of his word by the spirit of God for the glory of God. So how do I know if something is truly of God or not? Not what processes people are going through. It's what the end result is. In other words, is the end result the glory of God or is the end result the glory of man? Is the end result glory be unto you, or is the end result, look at us. And one day, Ben Ortiz and every single one here is going to stand open, naked, and revealed before him with whom we have to do and give an account. Jesus said we will be judged for every word spoken out of our mouth. Matthew chapter 12, he says that we will be justified by our words. Amazing. It's almost like it is the one verse that kind of goes against the exclusive Reformation view on justification. We're going to be justified by things that come out of our mouth, things that are said, things that are behaved. And all of a sudden, when I realize this, when I take the Bible for what, if I truly believe Jesus, I say, oh God, help me. And then when I look at the standard that is placed before us in Matthew chapter 5, it's impossible. You've heard it's been said, don't Murder? Good. I'm going to go deeper than that. Don't even say bad things about the person in your heart. Did Jesus heighten or lower the expectation under the new covenant? He said, you've heard it's been said, don't commit adultery. He says, good. I'm going to go deeper. Don't even have a lustful thought in your heart. Did Jesus lower or heighten the standard? Heightened it. He comes in and he says, all these things that are based upon and approved for the necessity to be someone different as a consequence, as a consequence of the Lord supposedly living within us. And he closes chapter five and verse 48 by saying, "You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect." What did Peter say in First Peter chapter one? "Be holy, for I am holy." What is the standard of God? Live sinfully, live wickedly, do all sorts of horrible things, but don't worry, when you go to heaven, you'll, you, when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's a fringe benefit. That's a fringe, that's not the gospel. But the gospel comes in and tells us that there's actually something required of us that is impossible for us to ever create. And you know what's impossible for you or for me to do? To be holy. You know what's impossible for you or me to be? Perfect. And now all of a sudden I recognize there's a standard. God doesn't change under the new covenant. He wasn't one way in the old covenant and comes out as Jesus in the new covenant. You know, an old mean guy to a young cool guy. <laughs> but he comes and he says, here's the standard. I'm restoring you back to my original intention in the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, man was perfect. He was sinless. He was holy. He was happy. Life was good. And the gospel is about restoring man back to that original condition. And that's why Paul's not ashamed of it. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In him, the righteousness, the moral character of God is being revealed in us. 
And the transformation takes place. So the blood of Jesus was possible for us to have the relationship. The Spirit of God comes and imparts to us the dynamic of that relationship. And he works that relationship out through our lives. And it manifests itself in his nature. He's called the Holy Spirit. So if the way that we attract people to our congregation is to teach unholiness in order to get approval of man, to get justification for our ministry, to get a sense that we're valid and relevant in all these things, then what we will do is get the glory of man. The glory will go unto us, but we won't glorify God. And at the day of judgment, it's going to be called a day of surprises. But if we're willing to sacrifice the approval of man, not that we're trying to make enemies with a single person, but we're trying to live a life that is holy and pleasing, recognizing I can't live a life that's holy and pleasing. Therefore, the attitude changes not from, oh, well, to, God, I need help. And when he moves within a person and saves us from our sin, we recognize that it was God. You know, Matthew chapter 1, I'm only going to share this briefly with you. Matthew chapter 1, it tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. And the reason he was a righteous man is he tried to cover up Mary's supposed sin privately. A righteous man never exposes the sin of another person. A righteous man may secretly, between the two of them, confront them and seek to restore them, but a righteous man never confronts the sin publicly. And it tells us here that he, being a just man, was unwilling to put her away. And then the angel of the Lord came to him at that night, and it said in verse 21, Joseph What's been received, conceived in her has been born of the Holy Spirit, but she will bear a son, and you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from what? From their sins. Does he say they will save the people from the consequence of their sins? Now, does he save us from the consequence? Yes, but that's not what he says. You have to pay attention to the words. He will save them from their sins. Thus, the whole argument of the book of Romans Romans is the great book on salvation, and not once it talks about going to heaven. Not once. Because that's not the goal. Don't you know, Romans 6, that you who died with Christ died to sin? You don't have to live under the dominion of it anymore. Therefore, there's another power that's greater than the power of sin. There's a law of aerodynamics that doesn't break or destroy the law of gravity, but the law of aerodynamics rules over the law of gravity. So any religious system that teaches us live in the law of gravity, stay earthbound, they flap her wings, but her children will be on the earth and they'll get crushed by every desire. But the system that is of God, eagles make their nests high up in the heavens. The system that is of God has a power over the law of gravity and men, when they're seeking to know God and to be discipled in his ways, when that truly happens, it'll be fully met and realized at the day of the millennial reign of Christ. It can be partially realized today, but never let us compromise. Never let us compromise the glory of God for the glory of man by using earthly methods in order to draw men to ourselves and say, look what God is doing. It tells us in the Psalms the problem with men was that they were constantly going back to the ways of man. In Psalm chapter 107, Psalm 107, he says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands and from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes finding no way to a city or to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord. There's the man of God. He cries out, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons, for they had rebelled against the words of the Lord and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then, verse 13, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Men doing what they want, 
and suffering. There's a phrase that says sin is its own reward. And yet God here in this passage is revealing that it's those who cry upon the name of the Lord. It's those people that no longer do their own thing that are coming to the house of the Lord to learn of him, not how to have a better sex life. To learn about him, to know him, to walk with him. And that becomes the basis of Christian fellowship. Anything else is just like a bar. And therefore, we come together in the holiness and the sanctity of our God to worship this God. In Deuteronomy, there's a very important passage. I remember years ago, my father quoted this passage many, many times. It's in Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. In the midst of the law concerning the cities of refuge, concerning witnesses against people that are doing evil, against warfare and, and, uh, and sexual immorality and all these things, he puts this little law right in the middle of it and says in verse 14 of chapter 19, Deuteronomy, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. The simple understanding is that they have boundaries for the nation of Israel, set the boundaries and don't trick people and move them in the middle of the night. You know, if you just move the rock wall, you know, two inches every day, you know, after a while, you'd have a lot bigger property. And so he says, don't do this. But what was the principle that I was taught right in this very room many years ago? Don't move the ancient boundary stones. There are limits and there are laws that God has established. And he says, do not move them to be contemporary. There are truths that don't change. In fact, truth doesn't change. Do you understand that there's no such thing as new news? New news is only old news to new people. There's no such thing as new truth. If it's new, it's not truth. If it's truth, it's not new. Truth, two plus two is always four, no matter what people think about it. Even with the new math, two plus two is still four. You can say, well, two plus two is 3.9. You can say that, you're stupid, but you can say it. You say, but we all agree that 2 plus 2 is 3.9. Well, then you're all stupid. The whole 10,000 of us, 30,000 of us in a room agree that 2 plus 2 is 3.9. Then you have 30,000 people that are stupid. And you have one little lonely math professor standing over there saying, 2 plus 2 is 4. And they start laughing him and belittling him and say, look at us. Look at this mass. How can you say that 2 plus 2 is 4 when we all agree it's 3.9? Ha, 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 Fool. Don't move the ancient boundary stones. There's things that God has said that always are true because God is true. The basis of truth is the nature of God. But the Bible tells us that in the last days, the book of Daniel gives us an illustration of this. It tells us in the last days that there's going to be an idolatry, not unlike the idolatry that is, that is spoken of in the book of Daniel in chapter 3. Daniel 3, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue. Perhaps you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. They wouldn't bow down to the idol that was 90 feet tall. It was pure gold. Why did Nebuchadnezzar make an idol of pure gold? Because in Daniel chapter 2, he had a dream. And you know what the dream was? He had a dream that... There was this giant statue. The head was pure gold. Its arms and chest were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were partly iron and partly clay. He's troubled. He's going to kill the magicians in the kingdom if they can't tell him what it means. They said, well, tell us the dream, and then we'll tell you what it means. He says, no, you tell me the dream. And you tell me the interpretation. Daniel's like, oh, no. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm one, I'm, I got elected into this position. I was carried into captivity. I'm supposedly part of this whole group of people that are supposed to know these things. I don't know them. And he begins to cry out to the Lord, and the Lord gave him the answer. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, this is the answer. You are the head of gold. There's a kingdom that's going to follow you, though, about a, a kingdom of, of, of silver. And the kingdom's going to follow them, a kingdom of bronze. And a kingdom's going to follow them of iron. And a kingdom's going to follow them of clay and iron. And he explained those. But then, what do we find? Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 3, says, no one's following me. I'm not the head of gold. I'm the whole statue. So he makes a statue of all gold, and he says, you bow down to this image that I've made of man. And what did the Jewish boys go? No. Even though the rave of the culture, everyone around them is bowing down to an idol. Everyone around them is worshiping a false religion. They say, No. And there was three against 100,000. Three. Where's Daniel? Probably out of the country on business. I don't know where. I don't think he was cowering in his room going, I don't want to bow down. And so what's happening? The scripture reveals to us there's going to be temptation in the last day to bow down to a false image. 
an image made with the hands of men. Not just in the day of Nebuchadnezzar, but Revelation chapter 13. There's going to be a temptation. The Bible says that there's going to be a massive revival of world religion, not a shrinking of it. But it tells us that in Revelation 17, that there's a woman that rides the beast, and she is drunk with what? The blood of what? The saints. She's drunk. In other words, she has this massive church, but she, because she's so massive, becomes the source of rebuke against those people who are clinging to his word, Church of Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3. They're not denying his name. They're clinging to his word. and Therefore, God says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. But in the meantime, this false religion is allowed to propagate on the earth to see who truly loves God and who does not to see who only loves the external manifestations of human power generating reputation and renown upon the earth and those people who are living by faith, not seeing, but trusting God and making decisions based upon faith, not sight, not bowing down with 100,000 people around us, but standing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not being arrogant cusses either, but being humble men, doing what's right before our Lord because he is a righteous God and believing there's a day of accountability that all men must give. And therefore, by faith, I cast my lot in with God, who allows the dynamics on the earth to appear to be hopeless, so that the men who are only living by faith will live by faith, but all men who have one foot in the world and one foot not will actually cast their lot with the things of this world that appear to be moving in the favor of the world, but God allows it to that standard to demonstrate the truthfulness of a man's heart. If that makes sense. (laughs) In Jeremiah chapter 7, He tells us of the time in Israel when they went awry. Much of the Bible does. He says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Stand at the gate of the house of the Lord and proclaim there this word and hear and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says, Listen, if you want to come into my house, Repent. Don't make it into a den of thieves. Don't make it a place where people do wickedness outside and then run inside the house of the Lord and say, we're safe, we're safe to do all these detestable things. And that's what he goes on to say later on in the chapter of Jeremiah chapter 7. Thus says the Lord, verse 21 of hosts, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice. I will be your God. You shall be my people. And I will, you will walk in the way that I commanded you, that I may dwell with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but have walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out from the land of Egypt to this day, I've persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So shall speak all these words to them, he says in verse 27. But they did not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. And he goes on to speak about that they made my house a den of thieves. Jesus, when he went into the temple in Matthew's, Mark's gospel, chapter 11, he's flipping over the tables. What does he say? You have made my house into a den of thieves. Remember the story. You'll have to look it up because I don't have time to go through it. In Mark chapter 11, he's going into the temple arena. While he's going into the temple, he passes by a giant fig tree and it had big leaves. It had big branches And then he went up to the fig tree, and you notice something. You know what was missing? Figs. This is the only miracle that Jesus did that was destructive. Every single miracle was constructive. He did one destructive miracle. He goes up to a fig tree that had great promise of fruitfulness and found there was nothing to it, and he cursed it. Then he walks into the temple, and he stops, and he looks around, and he notices it was too late. Now, the technical sense is it was too late in the day, so he came back later. But figuratively, it was too late. They have gone too far. They were busy. They were doing this and doing that, going here and going there and every which way they were moving. And they were saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Look at this great work that God is doing amongst us. 
and they were proud. Jesus turns over the tables. Jesus says, you've made my house, God has said, it is to be a house of prayer. A place where men are communing with me. They're knowing me. The priests are preserving knowledge. They're teaching of my ways. And they're teaching the men how to be discipled and to walk in my ways. But you've turned my house into a place of personal gain. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. But you've made it into a den of thieves. A den of thieves is the place where people rob banks or whatever. They run to their hideout and they say, we're safe from all the disaster that's going to happen to us. And that's what you've made my church into. A den of thieves. And in the day before destruction, people are going to be flowing to the house of the Lord, but the Lord will say, it's not my house. They're not teaching people to rise up on wings of eagles. They're teaching the people to flap their arms and to appear to be doing a work, but they're stuck to the earth. Their children are born on the earth. They can be crushed easily. There's nothing divine about their place. And then it tells us in Job chapter 39 of the ostrich, when the horse and the rider approaches her, she runs away. What is the horse and the rider? It's judgment, consistently in the scripture. The judgment of God comes against her. And what does she do? She uses her own strength, her legs, to evade the judgment. What does the man of God do? God, if this is your hand against me, I submit to your discipline. Not that I'm a masochistic person, but I want to please you. The sacredness of the body of Christ is something that is being lost. It's a shtick, it's a thing. And he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, something I'll be teaching on Sunday mornings. Ooh, boy, pray for me. In several weeks, he talks about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning The body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he goes on to say, this is why many of you are sick and ill among you. In other words, this is why there's no real supernatural power among you, not that fake stuff you see on TBN, the Big Hair Network. But there's there's a reason that you have this no real authority in your life. No authority because there's no body of Christ. At our school, we take what we're doing extremely seriously. We don't take ourselves very seriously. And there was a young lady that was with us, and she was very cantankerous, very difficult for the whole first half of the year. And everything about her was, Lord, by prayer. God put love in my heart for her. Saying things, challenging, and God would give a supernatural word, conjecturing, interrupting class the whole time. And then suddenly I found this book on the floor of my office, and I couldn't put it down. It was about casting out demons, and I started writing it like crazy. That Thursday, I went out to the school to do the book review. It was a different book. And one of the gals there, the older leader gals, and she had a book about casting out demons. And she's like, well, I don't... Yeah, God gave me this book as well. Monday night comes around. We finished class. It went well. I get a knock on my door at 12 o'clock, and they said, we need you now. I said, what's going on? Uh, Roxanne needs you. Well, can't she can't take care of it? Well, this gal, she's screaming something otherworldly. They need you. Can't she just take it? It's midnight. (laughs) Please. (laughs) We'll wait. So I get on. Me and another gentleman go. Suddenly I realize because of the numerous experiences I've had in a very demonic area of our country, very demonic, the number of experiences, I learned to pray the blood of Jesus Christ upon me when I go in and when I go out. And I didn't know what was going on. She met us at the door looks at us concerned and said, you tell her that we're going to come upstairs. You tell her. I'm not going to go in and, you know, the girl's half-dressed. Goes upstairs. The girl comes walking around the corner disheveled. Looked like the exorcist. Hunched-backed, staggering as she's coming towards me and wobbling. Suddenly, I turn around the corner and she flies backwards in the air, lands on the ground, starts cringing. This thing started choking me around the throat, along with another gal. There's half a dozen of us there. Instantly, two demons came out of this gal. And I'm not going to tell you how I did it. You bind it in the name of Jesus Christ, but I'm not going to get into that. Why were we able to do that? Because we're the coolest church in town. Cool churches don't do that. They pretend they don't. Because there's an authority for the servants of God who have only one concern to know him, 
What is the chief end of man? To know God and to glorify him forever. We've lost that in the church. And this becomes the proof of whether or not we're truly servants of God or merely servants of ourselves. There's people in the room this morning that have no idea what you're talking about. Ben, I kind of get what you want, but I have no idea. There's no context for me to understand that. For you, I want you to pray and say, God, please, I want to know you. Tell him. You really don't want to know more sex. I mean, that's about fun for about how long? 13 and a half seconds? Wouldn't you want to experience a power that's greater than that? Can we mount up like wings on eagles? Let me throw one more verse at you as my heart breaks and I've gone over by one minute and 10 seconds. <laughs> 12, 13, it keeps going. <laughs> but I want to look at the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58. I said, Lord, do you want me to teach this to these people this morning? And you don't say these things to make people your best friend. struggling over saying these things, as should be done. And I flipped open my Bible this morning, well, actually about one o'clock in the morning. I don't have to set an alarm clock when I teach. <laughs> and I went right to Isaiah 58, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. If you haven't read it, read it. But let me read a few verses. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my way, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. But then they say, verse 3, Why have we fasted and you didn't see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all the workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Read it on, go on. He says, this is the fast, to deliver men from their sin. And any religious system, although it's hyper and exciting and cool, that doesn't give a power, because Paul said in the last days they'll have a form of godliness but deny the power. It'll appear to be something of God, but it's actually not because there's no power, a power that's greater than their sin. So what are we, an ostrich or an eagle? Let's pray. I pray, God, that you would take these words of mine that I've spoken very brokenhearted, and I pray that you would give life to them. God, we are sick and tired. I think most of us have sinned enough in this world that we're sick of it. We want a power greater than that. I pray that you'd save our soul from our sin, not just the consequence of our sin, but we could walk in covenant with you. So please, God, speak to those who have ears to hear. Heal the hearts of the broken. And I pray that you'd take your glory in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sir. Sure.
trust what you say that you're good and your love is great I'm broken inside I give you my life and I need you
Jesus, we just stop and recognize what a wonderful Savior you are. You are wonderful, Jesus. Lord, we praise you. Oh, honor and glory to you, Jesus. Yeah. 